Father, we thank you that you have even given us this technology that we may gather in one sense remotely. But Father, it is, as you know, it is not the same. And Lord, nothing right now feels the same. And the result in our hearts is often that we worry and we fear. But we worry and we fear about the wrong things. And our eyes are so easily drawn away from you and to our circumstances and to the things of this world that war against our hearts and our minds. So, Father, in your graciousness today, will you please, please draw our eyes to Christ. Please, Lord, show us how safe and secure we are in his hands. Show us, Father, the futility of worrying about tomorrow. Teach us, Lord, to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Christ as we now come to your word, seeking to be fed as only your word can do for the glory of Christ. May he be exalted in this time and may we be strengthened in our faith in this time. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you at home, and I do encourage you to have your Bibles with you at home, uh, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 today. And this is one of those passages, it's another passage that deals with the reality of the fear and the worry that we are often filled with. I started this series off by saying that there is so much that the Bible has to say about worrying and about fear and about going through trials and going through afflictions and things like that. And this is another one of those passages. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 today. In 2001, which uh, most of you will know um, was when 9-11 happened, in 2001, it was just 10 days after those infamous 9-11 attacks that the San Francisco Chronicle ran a headline for their newspaper that read, Freedom and Fear Are at War. And that's a really interesting headline, given the circumstances. Many of you will actually know exactly what it was referring to, because you were there, and you felt the fear that everybody was feeling in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. You knew that tension. You felt that tension between freedom and fear. But the bigger truth is, friends, that fear wages war against us constantly, and it wages war against many aspects of our lives. How many things have we not done because we were afraid to do those things? How many times have we felt like we should share the gospel, but we were too afraid to do it? How many times have you thought, you know, I know I should or, or shouldn't maybe have done this or that, but my thought was, what if, fill in the blank. That's where worry comes in. That's where fear comes in. What if? That is the voice of fear pulling us back and slowing us down, giving us second thoughts. Fear wages war against our hearts constantly. And it most certainly wages war against our efforts to walk in obedience to the Lord. In recent days and, and weeks, the battle that we all experience with fear and anxiety and worry has definitely increased, hasn't it? I mean, here I am in, in my 40s. I never imagined what it would be like. I never even took the time to imagine what it would be like to live in a time where there was a global pandemic. 
You know, I've read the history books. I know what diseases like the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague and so on and so forth did, and so do you, I'm sure. But did we ever stop to even imagine what could happen in our day and age like it has? And this suddenly? Well, this is our third week doing a live stream sermon at New Beginnings Church, and I've used these weeks to focus specifically on what Scripture says about enduring affliction, anxiety, difficulties, fear, trepidation. And throughout this study, I've tried to be very intentional in pointing out that fear is not always wrong. It's not always a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing. Uh, when it causes us to slow down and to use wisdom before proceeding, caution before proceeding, and, and it saves lives, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. But when fear and anxiety and worry become excessive, when it causes us to live our lives and make decisions based on possibilities rather than what is real, rather than living our lives in light of God's promises. That's not a good thing. In fact, for the Christian, it is a bad thing. Let me flesh that out just a little bit, just to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Fear that prevents you from taking a nap on the railroad tracks is a good fear. Uh, fear that prevents you from walking out onto thin ice on a lake is good. But fear that leads you to trust in yourself or to take your eyes off of the Lord, uh, you know, where you're, you're doing things on your own, and by your own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord, that is not good. Fear can do that, but that's not good fear. That's not healthy fear. Now, there are different ways that people deal with fear. Some will just, I mean, they'll, they'll just fake it till they make it, so to speak. They'll pretend like they're not feeling fear. Others will deal with fear by just pretending that the object of their fear isn't real. Uh, maybe they'll just close their eyes and ignore the truth or the possibility of the thing that they fear. But I want to propose that we as Christians should deal with fear very differently. Not by feigning confidence, not by ignoring reality, but by acknowledging the tendency that we all have to feel fear and to worry about things that are outside of our ability to control and to think reasonably about that, to think biblically about that tendency that we have. The Lord Jesus was always aware of what was going on in the human heart. And he was aware of the tendency that we have to feel fear and to worry. And he lovingly and compassionately addressed that tendency so as to help us think logically and biblically through our fears in a way that results in a deeper confidence, a more steadfast faith in God. In the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel Testimony, we find Jesus in the midst of teaching the famous sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The entire sixth chapter is filled with what we would call practical theology. That is, it deals with how theology, how a right understanding of God plays out in real life for the Christian. In verses 1 to 18, Jesus preaches on the biblical view of worship. From verses 19 to 14, he preaches on the biblical view of wealth. And in verses 25 to 34, which is the passage we'll be studying today, he preaches on the biblical view of worry. To be clear, this section definitively teaches us the worthlessness of worrying. And when I say that worrying is worthless, I want to be clear that I'm talking about the, war, the, the, the battle that we have with excessive fear, fear of what might come tomorrow, even though tomorrow hasn't come yet, fear that controls us, fear that takes our eyes off of the Lord and sets our focus on ourselves and our circumstances and on possibilities, that kind of worry is worthless. It's worthless. It's not only not helpful, 
but in fact, it is, it is hindering, and it's completely unreasonable, and it is irrational. The entire point of the passage that we're looking at today is actually stated succinctly by Jesus in verse 33, where he says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this message today. See, we are prone to worry. And when we worry, the things that we worry about become what we seek and what we protect first. So Jesus takes this time to show us the things that prevent us from keeping our priorities straight, that prevent us from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now before we start, I do want to acknowledge that it is extremely, extremely easy to say, don't worry. But it's not so easy to put that into practice, is it? Here's the difficulty for us, and I just want to be upfront and honest about this. When we worry, it doesn't feel worthless, does it? It feels like that's what we should be doing. And the reasons for that, as Jesus will show us today, the reasons for that are that our faith is fragile and our perspective is puny. It's only when we back up and consider it from God's perspective that we see the worthlessness of worrying. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 30. I'm reading from the NASB, by the way. Verses 25 to 30. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So Jesus starts off in verse 25 saying, For this reason I say to you. Uh, That's how the NASB translates it. Um, In other translations you might see it translated therefore. Uh, That's obviously the same concept, just uh, different ways of expressing the same thing. But what we want to see either way is that there's a principle that the word therefore, or for this reason, I say to you, there's a principle from the previous passage that's being carried over into this text. And if we back up just one verse to verse 24, we see Jesus concluding the section uh, on the biblical view of wealth by saying this. He says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So Jesus, again, knew the heart of man. He knew how inclined we are to love and to live for the wrong things. And at the top of that list of the wrong things that people live for is often money. To the point where money becomes our master, our God, with a small g. Jesus was essentially saying, you can't serve God, big G, and money at the same time. You have to make a choice between the two. He knew that our tendency by nature is to put more faith in what we can see than in what we can't see. To put more faith in money than we put in God. How do we know if we're going to have enough money for tomorrow? How do we know if we're going to be able to put food on the table tomorrow? How do we know that we're going to be able to put a roof over our heads? How do we know if we're going to be able to survive? And the experts will tell us, well, start saving. 
And I'm not here to say that there's anything wrong with saving money. In fact, I'd say that it's very wise to do so. But what isn't wise is to trust in money more than you trust in God. Many years ago, I went on a mission to the country of Moldova, which is in Eastern Europe. And Moldova had once been a Soviet state, a state of the Soviet Union. And the people there were very, very good at saving money. They are a very hard-working people. But one of the things that rocked their whole country was when the Soviet Union dissolved and suddenly all the money that they had saved was no longer worth anything. It was all worthless. So one day, uh, you know, a family may have had enough money saved up that they could buy a whole house, maybe two houses. And the next day, all that money that they saved up that could have bought a house couldn't even buy a loaf of bread. Thankfully, we haven't seen anything like that happen here, at least not yet, Lord willing, not ever. But we do see people panicking and fearing that that will happen, fearing that the stock market, uh, you know, will, will drop to zero. You know, the stock market has become more volatile than, you know, the craziest roller coaster we've ever seen, right? We see people pulling all their money out of the stock market because, well, that, that's the money that they're counting on for tomorrow. That's the money they're counting on for retirement or to send the kids to college, which results, by the way, when everybody starts selling in what you'd call a sell-off, which results in prices going down. See, people don't worry about their money so much when the market's going up, when it's in a bull market, as we'd call it. But when a bear market comes and prices start dropping quickly people start to panic. People start to worry about how they're going to face tomorrow if they lose everything. Now again, there is nothing wrong with saving money. It is certainly wise and biblical to do so. But it isn't wise to trust more in money than you trust in God. It's a matter of having our priorities straight. So now Jesus is going to take that principle and flesh it out here, starting in verse 25, where he says, again, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. It's important for us to see here that he's telling us that there is something more to life than these physical things. There's something more important than physical life. There's something more important than physical well-being. Those things are great, but if that's all you have, you're not seeing the whole picture. Worry has a way of, of just dominating our thought life, friends, and setting our minds on the physical things of this world has a way of hindering us from getting our priorities straight and living out the right priority, which, again, is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, when you worry, I don't know if you've ever thought about what you're doing, but you are setting your mind on things that are uncertain. When your eyes are on the Lord, on the other hand, your mind is fixed on something that is certain. So when your mind is set on what's uncertain, what do you do? You fear and you worry because you want to control and, and minimize any possible risk. But when you set your mind on the Lord, you remain mindful of his goodness, you remain mindful of his sovereignty and of his providence. Paul wrote a very uh, important instruction to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he writes this, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But see, when you worry, instead of setting your mind on whatever is true, you're thinking only about whatever is possible. You're not thinking about whatever is lovely. You're thinking about terrible things. 
In fact, you're imagining worst-case scenarios. Do you see the worthlessness of worrying? Do you see what it does to your mind, what it sets your focus on, what it sets your heart on? There's a spiritual danger in worrying first and foremost about the physical, about things like eating and drinking and what we'll have to wear. And Jesus says there's more to life than physical food. When he says that, he means there's something more important than food. There's something more important than what we'll have to drink. There's something more important than what we'll have to wear. Jesus is telling us here that our priorities have an effect on how we live our lives. And therefore, our priorities in life matter. He's telling us that if these physical things are our highest priority in life, we will certainly be missing out on the bigger picture. Life is more than these things. And yet, those are the very things we tend to worry about. What should be our highest priority, friends? Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Trusting in God, doing all things for his glory and for his pleasure. Now, I'm certain that Jesus would, would not tell us to have no concern about something like a global pandemic, like the COVID-19 pandemic. He wouldn't tell us to have no concern for our health or for the health of others, but he would tell us that there are things that are much more important than our physical health. He'd say your physical health is, is part of it, but it's certainly not the whole thing. What's more important than physical health? Spiritual health is. Spiritual health. And if we get our priorities mixed up here, and if we start focusing all of our attention and all of our energy on maintaining our physical health, it will be to the detriment of our spiritual health. See, it's possible for a person to think that they've got the responsibility to sustain their own life. And while there is an element of truth there, we do have um, stewardship over our bodies and a responsibility to take care of our bodies. We shouldn't take it so far that we forget that it's God who is sovereign over life and death. Friends, if you are fearful about your health, we should understand that the way to counteract worry is to be wise, to, to do what you can do, but to trust God with the things that you can't control. Don't take your eyes off of him. Don't stop trusting in him when storms come, especially when storms come. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. See, the warning here is against being controlled by worry about secondary things. As Christians, our lives are not first and foremost about physical things, are they? No, our lives must be lived in light of primary things. Allow me to illustrate what that might look like. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher of the 19th century, was once offered an opportunity to come to the United States and deliver 50 lectures. And the wage that was offered him was an amazing $1,000 per lecture. That's not today. That is 200 years ago, almost. That was a lot of money back then. His response, he said this, quote, No, I will do better. I will stay in London and try to save 50 souls. End quote. What was his priority there? The physical or the spiritual? His priority was obviously the kingdom of God. That money sure would have been nice, I'm sure. That money sure would have um, you know, gone, gone a long ways in terms of funding ministry and things like that. But Spurgeon's priority was not money. It's not bad to have money. But in terms of importance, earthly treasure pales in comparison to heavenly treasure. It's not bad to have food, but having physical food isn't as important as eating the true bread of life come down from heaven. 
It's great to have water to drink. It's great to have something good to drink. But having physical drink isn't as important as drinking from the fount of living water. It's great to have clothes. But having physical clothes isn't as important as being dressed in the very righteousness of Christ. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see the point that he's making here? What Jesus is teaching us here is that it's easy to mix up our priorities if we're focused primarily on the physical. That causes us to fret. And that causes us to worry. But life is more than those things, than those physical things. See, the problem with worrying is that there are actually so few things in life that we can really honestly control. And so what we end up doing then is is worrying about things that are beyond our ability to control. I mean, if there's something that you can control, again, something that you can change, then do it. Practice social distancing. Wash your hands. uh, Self-quarantine. Wear a mask or gloves or or whatever you, you have to do. Do those things. That's, that's fine. But we often worry about things beyond our control because we want to be in control. But who's really in control? God is. God is. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, I would be scared to death if I was in control of much of anything. And hopefully you would understand the, the, the same thing, the folly of the same thing, being in control of everything. If we were in control of everything, all we could do is mess everything up. But praise be to God, He's in control. He's sovereign. And if God is both in control and He loves us, what do we really have to worry about? We do know that he's sovereign, right? And we do know that he loves us, right? And if he loves us and he's sovereign, we should be confident that he will provide what we need. Look at how Jesus illustrates this truth with both nature and with reason. First from nature, verse 26, he says this. He says, Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? See, like you and me, birds do have physical needs. They, they do need something. They need food. They need food for their sustenance, for their, for their existence. And one of the things that we should see here is that God is actually very mindful about that. And so he's deliberate in providing for the birds and in, in feeding them. Now you might say, wait a minute, uh, does God feed them or is that just kind of a natural process? It's both. It's both. Yes, it's a natural process, but God takes the credit for it. Um, you know, like everything that God does, there's an aspect of mystery to it. But the point here is that the birds are dependent upon God for their daily provision. And so they don't worry about tomorrow. They don't store up food. They don't worry that there won't be enough when tomorrow comes and the sun comes up. They do work today for what they need today but they don't worry about tomorrow. Now, if you think about it for a minute, there's actually no other physical creature in all of creation that worries aside from mankind. I mean, dogs don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Cats don't worry about tomorrow. Neither do worms, neither do fish, uh, neither do horses. Uh, You know, the list goes on and on. Only man worries about tomorrow. And yet, the point that Jesus is making is that human beings, specifically those who have believed in Jesus and are thus children of God, human beings are far, far more valuable to God than any of the animals. I mean, none of the animals were created in the image of God, right? So if God cares for the birds and yet values his children more than birds, how can we doubt how can we question? 
How can we feel uncertain about the fact that God will provide for us since he faithfully provides for them? Now, Jesus isn't denying the reality of the possibility of physical starvation. He knew that people, sometimes even Christians, sometimes die of starvation. But let's get back to the point of the passage so that we're seeing this in light of the point of the passage, which is that while physical food, drink, and clothing are good and are part of life, they're not the most important things in life. So he's leading us to ask ourselves if our priorities are straight. And the way to measure that is to see what we've got our mind set on. If we're seeking first the kingdom of heaven or if we're seeking first the physical things of this world that we might need tomorrow. That's why he concludes this passage by saying, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you have friends? Uh, friends, do you have fears today? Do you have fears about what might come tomorrow? Deal with what's in front of you today. There are enough troubles that we are all facing today. By worrying about tomorrow, by worrying about more than the troubles that you face today, you're giving yourself too great of a burden to carry. So Jesus then appeals to an argument based on reason. He started with an argument from nature, the birds. Now he goes to an argument based on reason. He says, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now that's a pretty straightforward question, isn't it? It's, it's a very redundant question, a question that has an obvious answer and doesn't really need somebody to speak out and answer it. The obvious answer here is that nobody, nobody can add a single hour to their life by worrying. It's been said by somebody far wiser than I am that worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its problems, it just empties today of its strength. What is there to be gained by worrying. I'm, I'm not asking what you can gain by having concern and by planning wisely. No, what can be gained by worrying? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. If anything, we, we lose something when we worry. We, we lose sleep. You've probably been there. I've been there. We lose joy. We can lose health. And we lose our focus on the unchanging, certain promises of God. We need not worry if we simply will just trust the one who holds tomorrow in his hand. The God who is sovereign over all of creation today, the God who is faithful to provide today, is the same God who is sovereign and will be faithful to provide tomorrow. Prudent preparation for tomorrow is fine, and that's good. But carrying a burdening anxiety about the unknown, about the uncertain, is neither good nor healthy. God has ordained from eternity the very minute that we would enter into eternity, hasn't he? He has. And so all the worry and all the care in the world, we have to understand, will not give us even one extra minute on this side of glory. Until we reach the end that God has ordained for each one of us individually, we are invincible. Nature, the birds, shows that worrying about tomorrow is unnecessary. Reason shows that it's not only unnecessary, but it's irrational. Jesus takes another example from nature, the, the lilies of the field, to illustrate the futility of worrying about what we're going to wear, what we're going to have to, to clothe our bodies with. The grass and the flowers are, are temporary. The, the grass and the flowers don't bear God's image. And so, if God clothes the fields and the flowers with beauty, only for it to last a very short time before it gets burned up in the furnace, how much more willing is God to clothe you and to provide for you? 
God didn't send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem and to save the lilies of the field and the flowers. No, he sent his son to redeem people. So, which would it be more reasonable to say God cares more about? Again, it's a question with an obvious answer. Friends, God has it all under control. And God loves his people far, far more than he loves birds or lilies. So Jesus kind of sums his argument up in verses 31 and 32. He starts to sum his argument up here. We read in verses 31 and 32, Do not worry then. In other words, in light of these principles that I've just illustrated for you, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. How comforting is that? To be told specifically that our Father in heaven knows, He's aware of exactly what we need and when we need it. And Gentiles, of course, in this context, Gentiles refer to uh, non-believers, people who are not Christians. Jesus was speaking to Jewish people who had uh, the Scriptures. They had books that were filled with stories after story after story after story of God's faithful providence. It was, part of their, it was part of their heritage, wasn't it? I mean, they had the, the Torah, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible where you know, they'd read about how God delivered their ancestors, delivered their forefathers from, uh, from slavery in Egypt. And they'd be in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, and there God provided for them by giving them manna. New every morning. New every morning. Just like his mercies. The point that he's making here is that his people should know better than to worry. Unbelievers, non-Christians worry because they've chosen not to trust in God, but to entrust themselves to basically anything other than God. They entrust themselves to, to themselves, to their own care, or to their idols. They don't know what it means to trust in God. They've rejected His love. They've rejected His providence. And they certainly do not seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They have every reason, therefore, to worry. And not just to worry about what might happen tomorrow or next year, but to worry about eternity. As God's people, however, we should be different than they are. We are children of the king. We have different priorities than the Gentiles, than the non-believers do. God knows what we need. He knew we needed a savior, and he provided what we needed, didn't he? Not only did he provide us with a savior, but in his time, he drew each one of us individually to the savior. And he's given us the promise that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not lose a single one of us. Our salvation in Christ is certain. It's guaranteed. And that was our greatest need, wasn't it? And if God was willing to provide for our, our greatest need, isn't it reasonable to think, shouldn't we trust him? For the smaller things too? Of course we should. And of course we, we can. We must. Unbelievers have a vastly, vastly different set of priorities, of, of values than we do. Our values and our priorities should be remarkably, vastly different from those of the world. Those in the world do not seek anything related to God first. They seek to fulfill their own interests first. But Christians must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When we do, it alleviates fear. When we do, it casts all our worrying to the side. 
The future is uncertain from our perspective. And at times like this, it feels particularly uncertain. But our minds must be set on the glorious truths of Scripture, which are always sovereign. God has a purpose. God has a plan. God is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Non-believers worry about tomorrow, and they should, because they may die before tomorrow comes and face God's wrath. We too may die before tomorrow comes, but for the non-believer, to die is loss and judgment. But for those who have savingly believed in Jesus Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, we should face the troubles of today and tomorrow much differently than the non-believer does. Jesus now comes to the, the main point of the passage. He's basically said, don't do this. Here's why you shouldn't do this. And now he sums up his whole thesis here, saying in verses 33 and 34, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now when Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that Greek word seek here is in the present active imperative tense, which basically is just a fancy way of saying it's something that we must continually be doing. It's not something that we do once and then we're good. No, it's something that we must repeatedly be doing. And when we do... When we do seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the feeling that we have that we need to worry and we need to fret and we need to fear is laid to rest. It's laid to rest. The future is uncertain to us from our our perspective, yes, but from God's perspective, friend, don't forget that nothing is ever, ever uncertain. Not about today, not about tomorrow, not about anything Ever. He's got tomorrow under control. He's got today under control. And while He has given you breath, and He's given you life, and He's given you energy and wisdom to live today and to prepare for tomorrow, He has not given us breath and life and energy to worry, to fear excessively, and to therefore prioritize wrongly. See, your ultimate priority in life, the thing that you value and treasure and pursue the most, determines the ways that you think about everything else that follows. And so it determines also the ways that you pursue all of your other secondary priorities. This doesn't mean that troubles won't come. It doesn't mean that we won't face adversity, that we won't face Times that really test our faith. But we must trust God with today's troubles without excessively fearing about what might come tomorrow. To plan and to prepare for tomorrow, that's wise. To worry about tomorrow, that's unwise. In, in fact, if we plan for tomorrow, it, it can help to alleviate the worries that we have about tomorrow, right? Right? But worry has a way of interfering with our confidence, our faith in God, of derailing our faith and confidence in God, causing us to focus on ourselves and to speculate on what's unknown to us. The energy that you spend doing that would be better spent on your knees in prayer. Worrying about tomorrow is an abuse of the gift of today. We do live in what feels like uncertain time, friends, but it's only uncertain to us. We don't know how long this pandemic will last. We can only speculate on how severe it will be, but we must not fear. Don't worry about tomorrow. 
God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and discipline. The unknown, what's unknown to us is scary, I get it, but I would encourage you in this time to fill your mind with the glorious truths of Scripture which are certain instead of possibilities that are uncertain. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that God's plans and God's purposes for tomorrow will not be thwarted. He's got it all under control. He is sovereign, and our worrying about it does more harm than good. See, to imagine that tomorrow will come with a burden that's too great for God to help us through, too great for God to deliver us through, is actually to distrust Him. He has given us the grace to make it through every day up until now, hasn't He? And he will not withhold his grace tomorrow. See, most of the troubles that we imagine, that that we can conjure up in our minds, most of those troubles about tomorrow never come. So why waste the time and the energy conjuring them up in your imagination when that same time and that same energy can be spent seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness God is with us friends and he is as much for us as he is for his own son if you are anxious or fearful or worrying about anything if if you're worried about the coronavirus about the stock market maybe you're worried about your job the future of your employment if you're worried about anything cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Remember that he is as sovereign over tomorrow as he is over today. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reflecting on those glorious certain truths of Scripture. Set your mind on things that you know are certain eternally rather than on the uncertainties of tomorrow. Dwell on what is good Dwell on what is true rather than what is bad and what is only uh, you know, somewhat possible at best. And as you do your part to prepare for tomorrow wisely by doing things like practicing social distancing, self-quarantining, washing your hands, trust that God will do his part too. In the words of J.C. Ryle, quote, This only we may be assured of. That if tomorrow brings a cross, he who sends it can and will send grace to bear it. End quote. How far will this coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic go? The answer is no further than God in his sovereignty allows. Therefore, beloved, keep your heart and your mind free of fear, free of anxiety, free of worry by setting your heart and setting your mind on him. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly Father, What a comforting thing it is to be reminded that you are not only aware of the circumstances that we face and the things that we are afraid of, but you care. You know the things that we need and you care that we have them. Father, teach us not to set our minds, not to set our hearts on all the things of this world. It's so easy and so natural for us to do that. And the only way that we can turn our eyes from those things is by your grace. So we pray that you would work in us by your grace, that you would fix our our hearts and our minds on these glorious, 
glorious, unchanging truths that your word reveals to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it not only nourishes our souls, but the way that it comforts us. Teach us, O Lord, in this time to turn to you, to live for you, to to keep our, our, our eyes set on you until the day that Christ returns or brings us home. Either way, we trust that you are sovereign over our lives. Teach us, Lord, to live in light of that truth for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We pray that you would be uh, casting your fears and your worries on God. He cares for you. Go at peace. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.